hiatus from, from this uh, book that we've been looking at in our evening services, and so I'm just coming back around to it now, and uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, I'm going to read the text. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, do your best to come to meet Nicopolis, where I have decided to spend the winter there. Your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, this is kind of an awkward way to end a book and a letter uh, that uh, Paul has been writing uh, to Titus. It feels maybe awkward to us, but uh, he's addressing in, in, in partial uh, the necessity of church discipline. Now, what do you think of when you think of church discipline? Do you think of uh, Salem Witch Trials? Uh, do you think of public humiliations, awkward meetings? I don't know if these are any of the thoughts that come to your mind uh, when you hear the term church discipline. Um, it often has negative connotations. But let me ask another question. What do you think of when you hear, when you think of medicine? Healing, Healing? Okay. Well, you might think of Buckley's cough syrup, maybe, which tastes nasty, right? But the outcome, hopefully, is, is helpful and useful, right? Uh, when you think of medicine, maybe you're thinking of restored health. You're thinking of uh, relief from any suffering that you may be going under. But I want us to think for a moment that, about church discipline, that it is actually medicine for the body. It is medicine, it is God's prescription for the body of Christ. You know, I think most people see medicine as a necessary, a necessi- excuse me, a necessary evil. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 it's something that we have to do, but the benefit there is on the other side. Now, um, it's important for us to realize that, that as medicine... Church discipline has been something that's been neglected for probably the last hundred years by the majority of evangelical churches. Not something that has necessarily been practiced, although it is in the Word of God, and it is something that we have to submit ourselves at times to, even though it may not be pleasant. Um, This is probably not the first text you would go to when you think of the words church discipline. There's another one. There's a little bit more famous one um, in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, and uh, we could turn there for just a moment to read the verses together, and hold your finger here because we're going to come back. Matthew 
And in Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So that's the more famous reference range on the theme of church discipline. And so in this text in Titus... Um, it does provide a foundation for church discipline. It does, it's, but more expressed in a general treatment by Paul as he's talking here. And uh, in this text, in cha Titus chapter 3, he's giving some specific case, cases for why this may be used. And so um, Titus, if you remember, he was left in Crete. He was, he was dealing with a difficult task. He had to confront the culture outside the church, but he asked, had to also address the culture that was outside that had come into the church. And so he had to, to give confrontation to uh, the people in his church who were acting like the world and tell them that they couldn't keep doing that. Um, and so Titus, as he's working through here, Paul's telling him, hey, you've got to bring to people's attention the glories of the gospel because the gospel has made a difference. It's made a difference, and it ought to make a difference in the lives of the people in the city of in Crete, in, in, the, in the region of Crete. And so when the gospel comes, the amazing grace of God comes, it sets us on a trajectory away from darkness and towards godliness. And so now here at the end, Paul's closing his epistle with the importance of, of doing the hard work to make sure that the trajectory stays on target and that unbelief, actions that look like unbelievers, don't come in and destroy the church. And so he prescribes, as a, as a doctor, if you will, church discipline to remove the negative influences in the church. So... Today, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to think through a negative, but then a positive. The negative, you know, difficulty of doing church discipline, and then the positive side of it that comes on the other side. Okay? So, in verse 9, Paul gives some direction here about people who are, are fools, <laughs> and the importance of avoiding them and addressing them and rooting them out of the church. Uh, verse 9 it says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, the people who are taking hold of these controversies, well, this mic is on, and I don't think this, is my mic on? I have batteries on. I don't know what's going on here. Am I on? Am I on now? I am on now. Okay. All right. 
So what Paul is doing here, he's drawing our attention to to observe the foolish teachers who are trying to draw people away with controversies, people who are concerned with with genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law. And a word that he uses here is the word avoid. Now, the word avoid is a vivid word. It literally means to shun. It's translated in the original, from the original, it carries the idea that's counterintuitive for us who actually, who, who want to express the love of Christ because it really has the idea of turning oneself around and purposely avoiding this individual. Uh, it's, it's, this is a really hard text to wrap our heads around because we're supposed to embody the love of Christ. But we need to consider that there are times in which the love of Christ is most well demonstrated when we address error. And uh, it's, if you think about um, a pack of muskox, I don't know how often you've seen muskox, but in Canada it was like a national animal, okay? But what muskox will do in the, in the Arctic, what they do is that when a threat comes and the, you know, wolves come in to attack the babies, what they do is they all, of the, they all circle around and they put their heads out and they're trying to keep out that which could harm the young. It's a very loving act by the muskox. Okay? But it's really important for us to understand what Paul's saying here. It, it communicates distance here for the purpose of protection of those who are on the inside. And so Paul's saying it's not an unloving act to avoid these people. In fact, it could be the most loving act that could occur. A pastor theologian once put it this way, that sentimentality is an enemy of church discipline. Sentimentality is the love of man divorced from the love of truth. It cloaks a big lot of hypocrisy and moral decay. Think about that moment. It's devoid of the love of truth. It's sentimentality. And so, what Paul's saying, look, somebody who is running around creating all this controversy over all these genealogies, and they're not actually, they're taking your attention away from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What really matters? He says in verse 9, it's unprofitable, it's worthless. And so, Paul is saying it's so important to avoid these teachings and avoid these people. So, I want us to understand here that turn back in your Bible, turn back to chapter one. These genealogies, these controversies, these dissensions that are unprofitable. Look at chapter one, verse ten. He says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. So in chapter 3, we have a description of the kind of chaos that they're doing, you know, the kind of doctrines that they're teaching that are not valuable. But what they're doing is they're coming into the church family and they're cozying up into people's homes and they're causing problems. And so what Paul says here at the end of the book is, you're going to have to do the hard work of rooting it out. And it's hard. 
but the consequences are devastating because they're destroying households. They're destroying people for whom Christ died. And so the work is difficult, but it must be, must be undertaken. I want us to move into the next verse, verse 10. He, he broadens this out a little bit. He says to reject the divisive. The stakes rise, and so must our response. In verse 10, it says, As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Now, the stakes are high. When a person is divisive, the stakes are high. And so Paul is saying here, if there is a public, a habitual stirring up that becomes evident and known, we're not, we're not to take this lightly. We have to address it. We're not called to be garbage inspectors. I mean, we don't root through people's garbage, but it's that which is public and well-known and that which needs to be addressed. And so, it's important for us to understand this going into it. And now, medicine, medicine is intended to cure. And church discipline here is crucial for the sake of the body and also for the church body. The stakes are incredibly high, especially if a person is divisive. Now, the King James Bible translates this word, a divisive person, as heretic, right? A heretic. Now, the word heretic is a transliteration of the Greek word. It just takes the word and Englishizes it. But that word was very commonly used in the Middle Ages by the Catholic Church for people who were teaching doctrine that was contrary to the doctrine of the official established church. They were dividing. They were being divisive. They were heretical. And so, these people became a law unto themselves, and they had no concern for the unity of the church. Now, of course, the Catholic Church, in their errors themselves, were defending error. And so, it's critically critical for us to understand here that what Paul is saying is that we need to guard the, the unity around the truth of the gospel, and we have to take it very, very seriously. But I want us to, this evening, to move into more some of the positive aspects as well that comes on the other side of church discipline. Um, in 12 to 15, Paul kind of turns. He moves over into more positive discussion. As he, it feels like you're, he's closing up the letter, and maybe he's moved from the topic of church discipline, but I think there's a positive side to this that we can see. Because whenever there is strife and whenever there is divisiveness, whenever that is gone, then the church is free to do what it was called to do. And so the examples that Paul gives here are beautiful examples of the church functioning well and being healthy. And so we have leadership there in verses 12 to 13 that is instructed to be followed. And so, when divisiveness is removed, then there's freedom to follow the leader. And Paul is communicating here about the importance of leadership. And so, verse 12 and 13, he, he describes some people who have leadership ability that may come into this congregation. 
what happens when somebody comes in and there's already divisiveness in existence? When this new leader comes in, their authority is questioned. It's not regarded. And so, by the removal of issues, there is the freedom for leadership to flourish. So, he says, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And so, Paul is pointing out that these are leaders that are well worth listening to, and when they come in and take your place, they have to have the freedom to be able to lead. And that's what a healthy church needs, is ability for the sheep to hear leadership. And so, Paul is working at preparing the, gr- the ground here for these others to come and sending uh, a godly representatives from Paul. And so, there's something else that I think is really unique here. Paul is going to relieve Titus of responsibility. He has the hard work of tilling the soil. It's hard work addressing sin, maybe even uh, bringing in church discipline. That's hard work. It's exhausting. It's potentially debilitating. And so, Paul recognizes here that there is an opportunity for rest after this has occurred. And so, in verse 13, he, he says, do your best to send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, in verse 13, there's some, you know, brotherly connections that are taking place here. There's a beautiful uh, uh, opportunity that when church discipline has occurred and factionalism is destroyed, the church can actually do what it's supposed to do and be a part of the mission and help assist like Zenos and send him on away. It's kind of like uh, investing in missionaries, you know, Things can get ourselves so distracted and so uh, uh, misfocused. Here's an opportunity here, Paul's saying, to do good and to support these uh, ministers and missionaries. This is actually the exciting stuff of ministry. This is what makes it enjoyable, you know, hearing a report from our guys that come from Costa Rica. What a a blessing it is to participate in that. Those are the joys of ministry. And so, I see Paul saying, look, if you do this hard work, then the joy will come, and it will be fresh, and the health will return. And so, in verse 14, not only do you see good participation, you also see the freedom to do good works. Verse 14, it says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And this is, this is where it's at. Um, this is real health. You prune the vine so that fruit may grow. And uh, Tony Evans said this, a church that does not practice church discipline of its members is not functioning properly as a church. Just as a family does not discipline, is not fully functioning as a family. And so, when this occurs, people are unable to grow in holiness. They're able to, to learn from other people and be good disciples. And so, learning how to do good works will be an outgrowth of this. And in verse 15, the last 
sentence here, there is an engagement of faithfulness. Verse 15 says, all who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Now, this last greeting is a subtle, subtle greeting, but there's actually words of wisdom here for the church. For good works to flourish, the love of Christ has to have free course. And greet those, he says, who love us in the faith, and grace be with you all. Grace is necessary. It's only God's grace that will give us a balanced ability uh, to, to work through difficult issues. It's God's grace that stands behind all of us. It's His amazing grace that we need to weather storms. It's God's amazing grace that will not allow us to grow bitter in midst of difficulty. And so, as we conclude this study of Titus, it's been a little bit disconnected here over the last couple of weeks because of uh, interruptions. But it's important for us to understand that, that discipline is important for the life of the church. It's good for the person who's disciplined because it's an act of calling into account. It's a, it's a, a gentle warning of perhaps even saving them from the wrath to come if they're not truly a believer. It is also for good, other good Christians as they see the danger of sin. The book of Proverbs says you strike the scorner and then the simple take notice. It is good for the health of the church as a whole as it purges leaven, and it's good for the witness of the church as a whole. And God is glorified as we make much of Him and make much less of things that are contrary to Him. And so it's by God's amazing grace that the church will prevail as we take God's Word seriously. God's Word shall stand, as we sang tonight. So we need to make sure that we are faithful to the prescription that God gives us to ensure that the health of the church is sustained. It's really important that we read the instructions on the bottle when we take the medicine. It's really important that we follow through with those instructions as well. Let's pray.